Morning, everyone. It's good to be together this morning. Thanks, Ian and Peter, for reading for us. Uh, have uh, Philippians 2 open in front of you. That'll be very helpful. Well, they say, uh, they say Sunday mornings, uh, church time is a time con- for a bit of confession, so I'm going to have a bit of con- confession to start off with, if that's okay. Uh, I used to play music, guitar and sing in a cover band. It's good fun. Um, Mid-North Coast, uh, New South Wales. Um, we sang lots of different tunes and it was, yeah, it was, it was a bit of a hoot. It was also good money, by the way. It's good money being in cover bands. Um, now, what do you want with a cover band? Let me educate you for a moment. Is that you want, you want imitation, not originality. So let me explain. So the audience don't want to hear a Rolling Stones song done with a jazz swing. They don't want to hear that. No, and they don't want to hear, say, a, um, a Beatles song with a reggae beat. Not at all. I remember, um, actually, last night over at the Robertson Inn, um, I watched for a little while a cover band, and they were fantastic. And they were fantastic for lots of reasons, because I knew some of the band members, so do you, I'm Gary. Um, <laughs> but um, what I love about them, they did so well, is that they imitate the real thing. It was, it was pretty cool. So you sing a long thing, this sounds like the radio, you know, this sounds like what you hear. Uh, there's a great example too of, um, these guys have been around for ages, right? A band called Beyond Again. You might have heard of them. So they're a ABBA imitation band. What's the word they call themselves? Something else. I forgot what it is. Tribute band, that's it. Yeah, an ABBA tribute band. So I think they've been around for like 20 years. So you can see here, they, they even look like ABBA. They sound like ABBA. Uh, they even, I believe they even speak a bit like ABBA when the time comes. They are you know, an imitation of the real thing. Now, as we think today about service, we're thinking about how we live together, we're thinking about relationships, we're thinking about unity, all those things, how we get along as human beings, or as uh, Philippians 1 verse 27 says, conduct yourselves of a, in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, the Bible says that we must imitate. Imitate. Now, not just anyone, not just prominent leaders or, I don't know, sporting heroes, musicians even. We're told to imitate Jesus. We're told to imitate Christ. Our attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. I guess that's our key verse this morning. If you want another memory verse, learn this one. Our attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. So how about I pray for us and ask God to help us with this and um, uh, we'll continue on. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word to us. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you speak to us through this word and we pray, Lord, that we would put your words into practice. Help us today as we're challenged about how we get along as, as Christian people and also we're reminded of your love and service and sacrifice for us on the cross. In Jesus' name, amen. So yeah, if you don't have your Bibles open, that'll be good. Philippians 2, uh, we're looking at verses 1 to 11. Uh, in your bulletin, there's an outline, and it might be helpful, I think, to have that open in front of you, just so you know where we're going. And you can scribble some notes down. In fact, this, the, the third part of today's little sermon has uh, some acronyms that you're going to have to solve. So you might want to get a pen ready to write those down. I'll help you with those in a moment. Now, I reckon we can break this passage up very simply uh, if it helps us by saying uh, verses 1 to 4, Christians together, verses 5 to 11, imitate Christ. 
So if you have that in your mind as we go through, one to four, Christians together, five to 11, imitate Christ. Well, Paul starts off reminding them of the experience that they've shared of Christian blessing. And we see in verse one, verse one tells us of good things that have been happening at the church at Philippi. These are good experiences in the advancement of the gospel. Remember that from last week? Good experiences sharing God's grace together as they are together as a church. Now, Paul Paul makes an appeal from that experience. His appeal goes a little like this. If you've experienced a number of important and wonderful Christian blessings, and we'll get to those in a second, then there is a particular responsibility as Christians that must go with this. Okay? So what is this experience that that Paul makes this appeal from? Well, there are four if statements. See if you can spot them in verse 1 that he makes his appeal from. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion... There's the four. So if you've experienced such sharing in God's grace, if being Christians has brought them any encouragement, if any comfort in times of pain and loneliness as they have experienced the assurance that they're loved by God and loved by each other believers, if any sense of fellowship or friendship or partnership coming from the Spirit's work in the family of God, if any fresh experience of tenderness and compassion, if you've had those experiences as God's people, Paul says to this church, then, verse 2, make my joy compete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. In other words, if you've experienced any of these good things, which the Philippians clearly have, then, well, be unified. Be like-minded. Having the same love, that's God's love, being one in spirit and purpose. Now, perhaps Paul does have in mind those uh, preachers of the gospel in Rome. Remember, he was in a jail cell in Rome, uh, and he's writing this letter to the church at Philippi quite a while away. And he's in this jail cell in Rome. There were these preachers in the church at Rome who seemed to be preaching the gospel, but out of envy and rivalry. They weren't being very, they were being quite divisive, weren't they, in the way they were going about their business. And Paul has a word to say about them last week. He maybe has them in mind in, in terms of unity. Maybe he has in mind this, this, uh, these two people called Euoda and Syntyche. Now, Euodia and Syntyche, we read about in chapter 4, verse verse 2, and Paul appeals to them to agree with each other in the Lord. So maybe he does have these examples on his mind. We don't know for sure. But he certainly has unity on his mind. So he says, if you've experienced these things, any of these good things, then be unified. Now, unity is just such a wonderful thing in God's church. Uh, last week we, we read Psalm 133. Now, it, I probably, having looked back, I probably should have made Psalm 133 this week's second reading. Psalm 95 is obviously wonderful, but it has a, a different message and we won't get into that today. But Psalm 133, um, I'll read the psalm again to you. It, it's, I, I just love the picture the psalmist paints. Although it is quite foreign to our ears and eyes, 
Uh, it, it's even, it even gets a bit messy um, for the neat freaks among us. If you're a bit of a neat freak, you might find this difficult. Anyway, let's keep reading. Um, how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. It's like precious oil poured on the head, running down on Aaron's beard, running down, uh, down on Aaron's beard, down on the collar of his robe. It's as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion, for there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. They're great pictures, aren't they? And yes, they're a little bit messy, but, but what they are, they're, they're, it's a picture of refreshment, Dew on a place that's renowned as dry, so Mount Zion. It's a, it's a picture of luxuriousness. So that's the oil bit running down someone's beard. Uh, it sounds a bit all yucky, but that's an extravagant, luxurious um, symbol of actually anointing of someone uh, over the top. That's how good unity is. It's just wonderful. And it's a picture, too, of the, of the goodness of, God's, of unity amongst God's people and how precious it is. You don't want to lose it through disunifying actions. So now we jump back to Philippians 2, then, with that in mind. In God's church, how does such like-mindedness, same love, being one in spirit and purpose, work itself out in practice? What does it look like? Well, let's think about that for a moment. That's where Paul takes us in this little letter. So, verse 3, under the heading there, live for others. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. So if we do things out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, in other words, living for our own interests, well, we're not being like-minded, are we? Uh, what are we being? We're, we're being me-minded. That's what we're being. The Christian life is a life in relationship, relationship with God, you could say the vertical, and relationship with each other, that's the horizontal. It's about saying, I am second, uh, third, fourth, fifth. It's not about saying, I'm first. Saying me first, an attitude or mindset of selfishness, is contrary to God's love. It goes against what the one spirit and purpose we share as followers of, Christ, of Jesus uh, it goes against that one spirit and purpose, and we'll see why in a moment. Instead of being selfish and looking at ourselves, uh, we need to, as verse 4 says, look to the interests of others. In verse 5, our attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. It's worth looking at here that attitude or mind, it's the same word actually in the original in the Greek as like-minded that we saw before. Uh, that's what's being stressed, this mind or attitude, like-mindedness. So God's church follows the attitude of Jesus, the mind of Jesus. Uh, that's, of course, where any loving action starts, our minds, our decisions. We make a decision to love. And that attitude is most clearly seen in the cross of Jesus Christ. And that's where Paul takes us next. The cross serves as, a, as the supreme standard of our behaviour as Christians. So let's, um, let's look at this extraordinary part of the Bible, uh, verses 6 to 8. It may well have been a song or a creed or something like that. It's hard to know exactly for sure. Let's pick, pick things up in verse 6. So Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found 
In appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now, as you can see in your outline, I've got three little acronyms to help us understand the experience of Jesus and therefore our response to that. Now, here's the first one. W-D-J-D. Nice. So Diana's got it. What did Jesus do? It's a whole lot better than W-W-J-D. What would Jesus do? What did Jesus do? That's the thing we ought to think about, if you remember that, that acronym from many years ago. So what did Jesus do? Well, Jesus being God in the flesh, the very nature of God. Now, don't miss that massive statement. Jesus is God. God in the flesh. Although being God, he did not consider this equality or power or authority something that he would exploit for his own benefit. That's the to be grasped. Uh, now, look, it's not hard to find examples either today or historically of misuse or abuse of power, is it? It wouldn't take us long to brainstorm some examples. Uh, I came across this little cartoon too. So the son is... Uh, there we go. The son is saying to the father, Dad, I'm considering a career in organised crime, says the son. And Dad responds, government or private sector? Uh, I, I, <laughs> abuse of power is commonplace. Or at least I think that's what the cartoon's message is. It's power or misuse of it which is at the heart of abuse, wouldn't you say? That's what defines it. The misuse or abuse of power. That, that's what abuse is. So when we have power or, or authority, how do we use it? Just think about that for a moment in your own life. If you've come across those examples, how do we use it? Or maybe we abuse it. Maybe we manipulate, or worse still, uh, manipulate things so as to get our own way. And sadly, there are many examples of misuse of power. Uh, in the workplace, in the church, uh, in government, local sporting club, they go on. It's not hard to find. And, of course, in marriages, even in Christian marriages, where, where power or strength is abused. And sometimes it leads to, to violence on the weaker spouse, and more often than that, that is the wife, now, friends, it's worthwhile starting here that there is no place for any type of abuse in Christian marriage. None at all, whether it's physical, whether it's emotional, uh, financial, whatever it is, there's no place for that in Christian marriage. You see, such husbands who do that, abuse in that way or misuse power, such husbands are not reading Philippians 2, 5 to 8. They're skipping that bit. And God's responsibility for husbands in the church is very clear. Uh, love your hus uh, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And here's a great description of how Christ loved the church in Philippians 2, 5 to 8. So let's see how Jesus uses his equality with God, his power, his authority. It's our model, not only for Christian marriage, but for relationships. So whether you're married or whether you're single. Jesus did not think of his status as God as something which gave him the opportunity to get, get and get. Instead, his very status of God meant he had nothing to prove, nothing to achieve, and so in humility and service, he gave, gave and gave. 
He became a nobody. One way to put it, isn't it? Jesus emptied himself. Dwell on those words just for a moment, won't you? He emptied himself. Became a servant. A better word is actually slave. See, a slave has no rights. Nothing. And this is the attitude of humility and giving, Paul says, the Christians at Philippi ought to imitate. This is the attitude of humility and giving that God says we ought to imitate as we imitate Jesus. Let's think about Christian leadership for a moment. Uh, it's, it's never about being a somebody, Christian leadership. I'm making a name for myself. Uh, dare I say it, even a celebrity. We cringe, and rightly so, when Christian leaders name their church or ministry after themselves. Alarm bells everywhere. <laughs> what about Christian musicians? Guys here have done a great job this morning. Um, I threw them a few harder songs to do, and they've done very well. Uh, See, every musician grows up uh, practising in preparation to perform. That's just what you do. It's drilled into you as a musician. So you perform well, and so you're seen and heard. And so others are impressed. That's being a musician growing up. That's what what you do. Uh, But Christian music, serving in music, is very, very different. Because... It's worship in song, uh, and you actively seek to point others away from yourselves to Jesus. Our preaching's the same. Preaching points others away from yourself to Jesus. Leading small groups, leading services, just reading the Bible. When you're up front in a leadership position, you point others uh, to Jesus and not to yourselves. So Christian leaders must follow the example of the cross. Jesus died as a servant, giving himself up in sacrifice for our sin. Not looking to his own interests, but to the interests of others. And that's you and me. That's the heart of Christian leadership. Service, sacrifice and humility. They're three words that define the cross. They're three words that define the attitude of Jesus. Let's not miss something as well, though. As we think about the cross, let's not, when we go to verse 8... Let's not miss that the cross itself was the ultimate humiliation. The ultimate of emptying yourself. See, only the lowest of of nobodies got crucified. You'd never see a Roman citizen get crucified. Uh, They had no rights, remember. On that cross there, that's it. You've got nothing. It's part of the emptying of yourself. You're you're a nobody there. Uh, You're naked, in fact. Uh, Forget the Hollywood little undies hanging around there and the sheet of... You're naked. You get crucified naked. Uh, Crucifixion is something you wouldn't mention in polite company in first century Roman times. You wouldn't do that. And if you were associated with someone who was crucified, that that just brought such shame on you as a a person in that that culture. In some ways, I think we've, we've almost domesticated the cross, haven't we? So people hang crosses around their necks. Uh, we've got a cross hanging in our porch. Um, and nothing wrong with that. It's a helpful reminder, I think, in the right way of what Jesus has done for us. It's important, though, you, if you have a cross hanging up somewhere, that you don't have Jesus hanging on the cross. He's off the cross. He rose from the grave. Um, and we even designed churches in the shape of crosses. Some churches, <laughs> there's a church up the uh, mid-north coast which has a cross that lights up at night with fluorescent colours. 
I'm not sure about that one. Uh, can you imagine me hanging a model of our switch around my neck? Or an electric chair or a chemical weapon? A bit weird, wouldn't it? Sort of horrifying. That, that's what the cross was to first century readers. That it's a horrifying thing. So let's not miss the shock, the offence and scandal of the words at the end of verse 8. He humbled himself and became obedient to death. You could stop the sentence there and say, oh, even to death, wow. No, no, even death on a cross. Even death on a cross. Oh my goodness, it's that, that humiliation. Okay, so that's what Jesus did. So that's the experience of Jesus, a sacrifice, service and humility. Unity in God's church is, is forged through us having that same cross-like experience, or those same cross-like experiences amongst us. So therefore, next one, you ready? W-D-G-D. What do you think? I heard it. What did God do? You guys are good. Well done. So verse 9. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. So because of all that we've read before, all of it, because of his self-emptying, because of his obedience, because of his death on the cross, therefore, and whenever we see a therefore, we need to ask what's the therefore, therefore. Remember that. Therefore God exalted him the highest place. God raised him up, raised Jesus to new life. He ascended to the highest place as Lord of all. That is the name that is above every name. Friends, that's the present reality of Jesus. He is the reigning Lord of all. And so finally, in verses 10 and 11, we've got another little acronym here. Um, WWD. Now, it's got nothing to do with professional wrestling. I just want you to know that. Um, so WWD, this is a more tricky one. To stretch the what yeah well yes what will we do and and uh we is all people so what will we do let's have a look at verse 10 that at the name of jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that jesus christ is lord to the glory of god the father all people whether they've trusted him or not will one day bow before him as Lord, confess him as Lord, Lord of the universe. The universe is his, he's Lord of all. Let me share you a quick little story to, to help us understand this, I hope. Um, so a few years ago, sorry if you've heard this before, a few years ago, uh, Wes and I were surfing at the mid-north coast in, at Bluey's Beach, um, a beautiful little spot, and uh, we were surfing at the north end of the beach and the south end of the beach we happened to notice, and it wasn't hard, about a pot of dolphins, probably about 50 to 60 of them. It was a lot of dolphins, probably the most I've ever seen. And they were heading toward us. There's about 10 or 12 guys in the water at the north end, and they were swimming toward us. And they got closer and closer, and then when they, they actually got to us, and they jumped around in amongst us. And at one point, you could almost reach out and touch them as they went by. Like, I want to tell you very, very clearly that they're still a really big fish. <laughs> and I was, I, was, I was sitting on my board and I just happened to put my feet up on my board. Uh, I know they're dolphins, they're not sharks, they're dolphins, but I know that, that this is their domain. And as they moved around the water and jumped around, it was, it was amazing. But I knew that they rule here, not me. 
It's not me who rules here. They rule. This is their domain. And what we read in verse 10 tells us that Jesus rules the earth. It's his domain. The universe is his domain. It's not me. It's not mine. And one day, whether we like it or not, we will all know this. We will all acknowledge this. We will all bow down before him. Now, that doesn't mean, by the way, that everyone is saved. That's what people call universalism. It's not saying that. The point is that all will submit, all will confess, but not all will be saved. Now, I wonder if you've had a comment, maybe you've talked to a friend and had a similar conversation like I'm about to show you here, uh, about you following Jesus, and it went something like this. So your friend says to you, you know, I'm pleased this Jesus thing helps you and makes you feel good, better in life and all that. But I I don't need your religion. You're my friend but if we're going to keep being friends, then you and this Jesus will have to keep off my back. Have you had a conversation like that with someone? Um, I have. I want to keep their friendship, but they don't. You know, stop, stop telling me about this Jesus guy. What do you say to them? Maybe you've said that. And that's you today. Oh, I'm here again. It's good I go to church, but I'm not really quite sure of this Jesus guy. Let, let, let me hear what I think you should say. At some point, you have to say this. In fact, if you're a good friend, if you love them, with all kindness and love, you've got to say, you are my friend, and I don't want to lose that friendship. But I have to tell you that Jesus is not my coping mechanism. He's not my therapist. The Jesus I am on about made you. You owe him. And one day you will have to give an account of your life to him. Everyone will confess that he is Lord Sooner or later. That could be a happy time or an incredibly sad time of shame and regret. How about we tie some of these, all these things together? There's a lot here, isn't there? A lot to think about, a lot to pray about. And maybe there's some questions you might have in a few minutes when we have our question and answer time. Uh, this Jesus who is Lord of all, this Jesus who is God, humbled himself and became man and served us in dying for us. He gave himself for us. Now our attitude as God's church, just like the church at Philippi, is that we must have the same attitude, remember in our minds that leads itself to behaviour, attitude of humility and service. We must imitate Jesus. That's the recipe for unity in God's church. It's good and it's pleasant. It's like oil dripping down someone's beard. That may not help you at all, Um, but it's good. (laughs) It's giving, not getting. It's serving, not being served. Now, during the week, I um, uh, I posted on our Facebook group. If you're on Facebook, actually, join that group. Be good. Um, Look for us, St John's Anglican Church group, if you're not on it. Uh, We post things now and then and communicate with the church that way, but also email it through the e-news. Make sure you get the e-news as well. If you don't, then fill out a form in the back. Tear it off, put your email there, put it in the comment card. You can also ask questions and prayer points and so on. So I put this, this article here on, that, uh, on the email and on the uh, Facebook group. That's the little screenshot at the top of the article. Make Sunday mornings uncomfortable. Three rules for engagement at church. Now, it's a great article. Everyone should take time to read it. It won't take you long. Um, the author encouraged us to be personally uncomfortable at church so that others would be comfortable. 
Perhaps she got the idea from Jesus who made himself nothing. I want to give you just her three rules as we close. They're really good. And you can read the rest of the article and flesh it out during the week. Here's the first one. An alone person in our gatherings is an emergency. This is what she writes, in concluding what she, in, in her little argument. My guess is that we have all, at one time or another, walked into a gathering and wondered who will love me. What if we asked ourselves instead, whom can I love? That's a good question, isn't it? Whom can I love? Now, you know, some of us will find it really hard to do that, but not that many. And some of us will go through times when that's really difficult to ask that question, whom can I love? Because they desperately need someone to ask it for them. Don't forget that. But if we can ask, whom can I love? That's a good thing. How about the next little rule, she says. She says, friends can wait. I love this one. This is how she concludes. Friends can wait for our attention on a Sunday. Better still, they can mobilise in mission too. Spurring each other on to welcome strangers in Christ's name won't weaken our friendships, it'll deepen them. So if you're chatting with a friend over morning tea and you see someone alone, who's come on their own, or doesn't get talked to very often, the best thing you can do for your friendship with that person is to say, you know what, let's continue this later. There's a person who's alone over there, I'm going to go and talk to them. All right? Even better, you could say, hey, there's a person who's alone over there, or a new person, Let's go together and go and talk to them. That's a pretty good move as well. So that'll strengthen your friendship. That won't weaken your friendship. Okay, that leads us to the next one. Introduce newcomers to someone else. So it's not really, you're not passing the responsibility on to someone else. You're not saying, here's a newcomer, dunk, I'm out of here. You're not doing that. Um, (laughs) What you're doing is probably staying with them, introduce them, getting to know them, and so they can make more connections and, and, uh, and you can serve them. Now, I love how the way she closes. This is the closing of the article. Bit of a spoiler alert, but it's still worth reading the article, I promise. Um, So this Sunday, let's take a risk. Listen to what she says clearly. Let's reach across the small divides to others as we imitate the one who spanned the great divide for us. Isn't that good? And let's urge our friends to do the same because the harvest in our gatherings is plentiful. All right, let's ask God uh, to help us imitate Jesus, to have that same attitude of humility, service, of giving. Let's pray, and then, then we'll see if there's any questions or comments. Let's pray. Father, there's so much for us to uh, think about and act upon. But first, Lord, we want to thank you that, Lord Jesus, you came to this earth as a man and humbled yourself and emptied yourself by dying for us. Lord, thank you that you love us so much that, that, um, that you died for us. Lord, we pray that we would indeed have an attitude of your son, Jesus, as we meet together, as we are your community here in Robertson, Barwang. We pray, Lord, that we would have that attitude of emptying ourselves, putting others before us uh, as a servant in humility. Lord, we know that one day that we will have to give an account to you, Lord Jesus, when we bow before you as Lord of the universe. Lord, we pray, Lord, indeed, that, um, that as we remember that, that we would indeed serve each other and love each other. And we'll find great unity in that. In Jesus' name. Amen.